0: In March 2017, voters across Hong Kong went to the polls to elect their next chief executive, their next leader. Leading all the opinion polls was John Tsang, a former finance secretary. He had strong backing from the business community and the Democratic Party. One poll put support for him at 62%.
1: The following is the result of the count.
0: The result was a landslide win for Carrie Lam the pro-Beijing candidate who garnered almost 67% of the vote. Tsang came second with less than half of that. So what went wrong? Why did the overwhelming favourite flame out on election day? Today on Changemakers, our story is from Hong Kong, where in 2014, a massive movement spent months occupying the streets, pushing for more democracy. There are many countries in the world where a mass rally is almost a reflexive first act of protest. But in Hong Kong, the occupation was seen as a last resort. Today, a fascinating story about the perils of protesting against an institution as monolithic as the Chinese government. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. Supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. When Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997, Article 45 stated that the ultimate aim for selecting the head of government would be via universal suffrage. That means everyone gets a vote. 16 years later, 4 million people were registered to vote. So guess how many people were eligible to actually vote in the 2014 elections? 3 million? 2 million? Try 1,200 people. Clearly the Chinese government had not got around to implementing that ultimate aim. Kim Min-chan is a professor at Chinese University
2: in Hong Kong. And uh, several years ago, Beijing made a promise that by 2017, Hong Kong people would be given universal suffrage for the election of chief executive. Unfortunately, Xi Jinping then came to power in China. After he took power in 2012, there was an internal document issued by the government that there were seven things that people shouldn't discuss about. And these seven things include civil society, about independent judiciary, about constitutional democracy, about independent media, about the historical mistakes of the party, and so on and so forth. People weren't allowed to discuss these things, even in universities. Well, if democracy is not being allowed to be discussed, Will they, you know, implement any, give Hong Kong people any democracy? Of course not.
0: For Kinmin Chan,
2: this posed an
0: existential
2: threat to Hong Kong. And I don't see, I don't see how Hong Kong can continue to govern when it is such an educated society, when young people have such a strong aspiration for democracy. The people wanted democracy.
0: They'd been reassured it was an ultimate aim. But Xi Jinping was heading in the
2: opposite direction. But Beijing was not willing to give Hong Kong people a true democracy. And so I think I need need to make Beijing understand that that was really a crisis.
0: Today, we're taking you on a tour of one of Asia's most dynamic cities, Hong Kong. You see, Hong Kong likes to present itself as a dynamic city of the future. When you travel through there, that's the impression you get. There's great food a cool nightlife and a booming expat community. But the reality is a little different for most people living there.
2: This is one of the most unequal society in the world. We are one of the most affluent society in the world, but you don't feel it because the distribution of wealth is just outrageous, you know.
0: In 2017, a government report found the richest 10% in the city earned 44 times that of the poorest making it the second most unequal city on earth. For Kinmen, the route to reducing inequality is democracy.
2: Uh, so we really want a place which is more equal, more livable, people not just, you know, chase up the money and don't care other people who are less fortunate.
0: Emily Lau is a member of Hong Kong's Legislative Council. But before that, she was a journalist. In fact... She covered the historic meeting in 1984 when Margaret Thatcher signed the agreement to deliver Hong Kong back to the Chinese. And if you go to the BBC archive, you can still see
1: my question to the Iron Lady. I said, Prime Minister, two days ago, you signed an agreement with China promising to deliver over 5 million people into the hands of a communist dictatorship.
0: To make the handover more palatable, Thatcher negotiated some terms that allowed everyone to claim that Hong Kong was on a path to democracy, without actually doing much about it. Article 45 was the part that had the notorious commitment that the ultimate aim for selecting the head of government would be via universal suffrage. But in the meantime, it ended up being 1,200 electors who'd choose the leader. And it's not even like the 1,200 people were broadly representative of people living in Hong Kong. These 1,200 people uh, belong to the functional
1: constituencies, which were created by the British in 1985, uh, giving a vote to people belonging to Chamber of Commerce, to the banks, uh, in the engineering profession, the legal profession, the doctors
0: and so on. So in a way, Britain did the dirty work for the Chinese government. By failing to set up democracy before they left, it allowed the Chinese to just adopt it as business as usual. I mean, it really stinks, uh, but the British created
1: that, and the Chinese just love it so much. They put it in the basic law.
0: Instead, the residents of Hong Kong are restricted to voting for members of the Legislative Council. There are 70 members in this body, but only 40 are elected through these so-called functional constituencies. The other 30 are appointed. The result is that even if the pro-democracy candidates win a majority of the vote, they'll never get enough to beat the pro-Beijing candidates. The deck is just too strongly stacked against them. So if you live in Hong Kong, what can you do? Unfortunately, the Chinese government aren't exactly known for their support for universal suffrage. The democratic protests in Tiananmen Square in 1989 live on in the institutional memory of the ruling elite of the Chinese government as posing a threat to the government's existence. So Hong Kong's pro-democracy forces had an especially difficult conundrum. How do you push a government to change when the other side interprets your protest as an existential threat? Benny Tai was a law professor. He sat down and tried to figure out, from first principles, what would it take to get the Chinese government to follow through on what it had agreed to do back when Hong Kong was handed over from the British. His first insight was that the democracy movement needed to position itself in a reasonable way that would mean the whole of society could get on board. As such, he thought its demands should arise out of commitments that China had already agreed to. Well, it was always just a movement for universal suffrage. And universal
1: suffrage is promised in the basic law. So it's not as if it's something against
0: the basic law or against the Chinese policy. After all, there was a good reason the Chinese government had made those commitments. When the Chinese decided to take Hong Kong
1: back, the Hong Kong people were very frightened of communist rule. In fact, many of them actually fled to Hong Kong uh, from China. So the Chinese government said, OK, don't worry, Uh, we will not uh, come to run Hong Kong directly. We will allow you to run Hong Kong. You, the Hong Kong people, will run Hong Kong under one country, two systems and your capitalist lifestyle, your freedoms and all that will be preserved.
0: Benny Tai also theorised about how the movement could make the Chinese government take notice. Kinbin Chan
2: remembers when it first happened. He believed that um, it was time to use more uh, confrontational tactics to make Beijing understand that we are facing a crisis and we were serious about democracy. And he named uh, Reverend G and, and me uh, publicly without first consulting us. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, I was in Paris at that moment, <laughs> uh, joining a, a conference. And then Reverend G called me, saying that, well, Benny and I name saying that only you and I would be able to organize a movement like this. And so he consulted me whether I would join or not. So um, at the end, I said yes. His thinking was simple. China would accommodate a certain level of
0: confrontational protest because they didn't want a repeat of Tiananmen Square.
2: After the Tiananmen Square incident, the censorship lasted for three years until 1992. China uh, wants herself to be part of the international communities. I don't think China wants to look bad, you know. If they kill people here, U.S. or other European countries might be forced to censor China. And then it will be very dangerous to the Chinese regime because they now they rely on economic growth to sustain the regime, to support the regime.
0: With its unique tradition of peaceful protest, it seemed unimaginable that something like
2: Tiananmen could happen in Hong Kong. So uh, we understood clearly that we could invite backlash from both the community as well as from Beijing. So we need to be careful uh, to have a kind of self-limiting movement, that we need to be strong but not too provocative.
0: Benny Tai's idea was to occupy the central business district of Hong Kong to force the government to react.
2: In fact, we have a four-step plan. Uh, first, we organise a series of deliberation days. We spend around nine months to one year Uh, to hold many town meetings in different corners of the society. People who are professional, who are social workers, who are even homeless, were involved in the process, talking about why we need democracy and what kind of proposal that you will support. They did this
0: because they recognised that democracy wasn't just about voting. It was about participating
2: in public life. But for ordinary people or even those rank-and-file members in political parties or civil society, sometimes they're afraid to speak up or they don't have the skill, you know, to express themselves. So we need to design the whole discussion carefully.
0: The organisers trained moderators to make sure everyone had a chance to be heard during those deliberation days.
2: At the end of the uh, deliberation, We organised a referendum because in Hong Kong, the government does not have any authority to organise referendum according to the basic law. And so we we, we did it
0: ourselves. That's right. Instead of waiting for the government to call a vote, they
2: just did it themselves. And at the end, we have 800,000 people joining our referen- referendum for a uh, smartphone, for the voting booth in ch- uh, set up in churches, in school and social service
0: centres. The process of holding a ballot transformed people's understanding of what was possible. People suddenly realised they didn't have to wait for the government to give them
2: legitimacy. They could just take it. So after the referendum, we believed that we already got mandate from the people. So we, we, we then... Invite the government official to sit down with us to negotiate, to have dialogue.
0: Unfortunately, the third step, negotiation,
2: didn't go as they expected. But we waited and waited and they didn't respond. And so at the end, after three weeks, four weeks, we have a very brief meeting with the top government official. They were just, you know put aside our referendum, they don't look at it. Uh, they just ask us to, you know, um, how to say, give up our movement. And after that meeting, Beijing announced that, they make a decision that we're, we're, not, we're not going to have a, you know, free election. It was the ultimate snub. The 2017
0: elections would be the same as before, with the deck stacked heavily in favour of Beijing. Having spent so much effort, with so little result, the movement started to fray. Of course, some people got quite impatient
1: with uh, Professor Benny Tai and then later they became the Occupy Trio. Uh, Professor Benny Tai with Professor Kenneth uh, Chan and also Reverend uh, Chu Ming. And they said, well, you've been talking about it for more than a year, still
0: nothing happened. It was time for step four, to bring the confrontation into the streets. They would occupy central Hong Kong, right in the heart of the financial district, where the government would have no choice but to react. The idea was always that it should be peaceful.
2: As I mentioned, um, the regime have military force; they have police, and in Hong Kong, you have no way to overthrow the government. If this is a sovereign state, I would say that we should consider different means of struggles. In some countries, you do need revolutions to get democracy.
0: But in Hong Kong, that was a strategy that would fail. They were way too outgunned. Besides, the democracy movement was playing the long game.
2: Who know what happened in China five years, ten years later? If we want to sustain um, the movement, I believe that um, a peace movement is the only way out. The movement was called Occupy Central.
0: They would occupy the streets of central Hong Kong. But Kinman added some words to the occupation's name to underscore its peaceful intent. When I joined the movement, I said I
2: have to add the word love and peace into it.
0: So you were the love and peace? Yes, I'm
2: the one who added the word love and peace, not just Occupy Central. Because to me, the action of civil disobedience is not just about confrontations. Henceforth, it was known as Occupy Central with love and peace. During the one and a half year mobilization, thousands of people already signed off, saying that they will they are going to remain peaceful during the um, occupations, and once uh, they were arrested, they will not resist. They will not hurt the police, and then uh, during the trial. Uh, They were willing to show that legal responsibility. We, we, We want to learn from Martin Luther King, from Gandhi.
0: Back in a moment. Building power to change the world is a dynamic process, which means it's always helpful to discuss your strategies and refine them. Pick apart what's going right and reflect on how you could be more effective. That's why we've set up the Changemakers Masterclasses. They're small seminars with a maximum of 50 people, presented by me, Amanda Tattersall. We spend a whole day taking a deep dive into one aspect of change-making. In the first season, we're looking at power, how to build it, wield it, as well as examining the best and worst practices from around the world. We're holding the first ones in Australia in February 2019 in association with Sydney University's Policy Lab. And then we're heading to Melbourne and several cities in the US and the United Kingdom later in the year. So check out the schedule at changemakerspodcast.org slash masterclasses and sign up today. Maximise your impact with Changemakers Masterclasses. But there was a problem. After the failure of the referendum, the growing student wing of the movement had become impatient. This is 17-year-old Joshua Wong, founder of the student movement, Scholarism. He is speaking to a crowd of 1,500 people. He is saying, where are the adults? Wong had a slightly different idea about how his city needed to change. Two years earlier, when Wong was 15, The government had planned to make children take mandatory classes in Chinese patriotism. Wong had protested by going on a hunger strike. In mid-2017, Wong led fellow students to boycott classes in increasingly bold protests. By September, he had organised them to congregate at the government complex.
2: There's a moment that you thought, wow, we're going to make some massive change.
0: Addressing the crowd, Wong told them in no uncertain terms, no matter what the price, we cannot dump this on the next generation. He then led the students down the street to occupy the Civic Square. The problem was that the Occupy trio, Benny and Kinman and Reverend Chu, believed it was too soon for confrontation. They'd planned to wait until October. They believed the students had jumped the gun this presented a dilemma to the older members of the movement. Should they back in the students or should they
2: split? Uh, to the student, they believed that our four-step plan um, was not uh, strong enough, not forceful enough to make China give Hong Kong people democracy. We put occupation, civil disobedience, as the last resort of
0: our plan. Kinman says they did this because they wanted to look reasonable, so they had mainstream
2: appeal. But the students had grown frustrated. And once they found that our negotiation did not succeed, they, they further believed that their idea was correct, that we need to have direct action as soon as possible.
0: He says that since the students had decided to take action,
2: the best course of action was to back them in. And then they have ownership of the movement. And so, you know, the whole generation can be awakened, you know. So this is even better than our plan. So in
1: the end, uh, Professor Tai was sort of forced to declare the occupation earlier than October 1st and not in the area that he had originally
0: anticipated. Emily went to the occupation. It didn't last long, at least for her. I was actually arrested at around
1: noontime on that day. We went, uh, because at that time, Professor Tai had already declared that, you know, they would start the occupation. So that means many more people should come, would come. So they, uh, uh, they wanted to arrange for some sound equipment to be sent into the area. And then the police refused to allow this. Those people to move the sound equipment in because they say this is an illegal assembly. How can I allow you to move the sound equipment in? And so a few of us went there to uh, negotiate with the police and the police arrested us for, you know, uh, blocking the officers in the discharge of their duty. So they took us back to the police uh, college in Wong Chuk Hang, which is right next to the Ocean Park. And they kept us there for... 10, 11 hours. Some of the young people uh, climbed into the uh, government square and they were arrested. So and many people came
0: and the government fired uh, 76 rounds of tear gas. The Occupy movement's calculations were wrong. The government did use force. Thankfully not Tiananmen-style force. But it was enough.
2: It was very moving. Um, when the police used um, tear gas to disperse, disperse the crowd, people like me on the stage, we immediately asked people to leave in order to protect their life. We really didn't know what happened next. Would they, would they, would they use guns to fire at people? So we asked people to leave. But leaders like us, we were determined to stay, you know. And, and wait for the arrest. People were so courageous. They refused to leave, you know. And um, they were, of course, they were panicked, they screamed, but um, and just a moment later, they went back to the same spot.
0: But the deliberations of the previous year had prepared the movement for this moment. Years of pledges and conversations about non-violence meant the violence of the state was not met with violence from the people.
2: Uh, when they confront the police, they only use umbrella to protect themselves against the pepper spray. So the umbrella is a symbol of you know, peaceful struggles because it is not an instrument or the tool used by the protesters to hit the police. You know, it's just to protect ourselves from the pepper spray. But it wasn't raining, so why did so many protesters have umbrellas? Because in Hong Kong, many ladies want to have white skin, so they always carry an umbrella with them to protect themselves from the sun. So it is a very feminist actions. So when the police use pepper spray again, the protester, you know. Immediately, we found that there are lots of umbrellas. People can use umbrellas to protect ourselves. Even passers-by, who happened
0: to be holding umbrellas, became involved. And some lady, when they were
2: in a footbridge, when they look at people on the street being cracked down by the police, they open up their umbrella like a parachute. They throw it down from the footbridge. Oh, it was a beautiful scene, of course. Uh, And then, so, umbrella became such an important symbol during these peaceful struggles. Dozens of twisting
0: umbrellas falling from the overpass down to the children on the street. Mothers doing whatever they could to protect their children who were being hurt, fighting for their future. The umbrellas of the umbrella movement weren't just about protection. They were a symbol about how love and self-sacrifice could unite the people. The regime had miscalculated the popular response to its violence.
2: Next day, more and more people came. Some women told us that we came here for a very simple idea, that we want to protect the state. They are like my children. And I I know nothing about democracy, but as a mother, you know, I want to protect my children. So I came here to protect the children.
0: Far from stamping out the protests, the state violence was broadening their
2: appeal. Thousands, tens of thousands of people gathered. So um, something really amazing, unimaginable to us.
0: In fact, Kinman says the violence was what made the movement so big.
2: I believe that it is the tear gas which incites people joining the movement in such a massive scale. Our original plan is that well, probably tens of thousands of people will join us. And, and then we might move other people in the communities, and then we can have another round of movement. But it's the tear gas who suddenly call upon so many people to join us at the same time.
0: Remember, Emily had been detained while all this was happening. But when we came out, we didn't know what
1: happened a few hours ago and we were quite shocked. And then, of course, they blocked the roads. And then after that, they refused to go. (laughs) So once
0: they blocked the road, (laughs) why leave? The old plans of the Occupy Trio were to camp out in the financial centre for two days only. But this was now something else entirely. The movement quickly took on a life of its own.
2: Every day people spend time to create art, singing songs, have discussion, a lot of forum in different corners of the occupied site. And the air was so clean because there was no traffic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a, 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 a like a utopia, you know. So uh, the second day of the occupation, there was a banner uh, saying that you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. The occupation had blossomed into something bigger than any
0: of the groups that were down there. It wasn't just about democracy or students wanting a better system. It was an experiment in living differently, a revolution in the hearts and minds of its participants. But it wasn't just a love-in. There was work to be done. Emily Lau let the protesters hold meetings in the offices of the Legislative Council.
1: That's why the pro-Beijing politicians were livid. They said, we turned the whole thing into a citadel for, the, for these occupiers. And sometimes uh, the occupiers would come in to have showers, and sometimes they would even sleep up there. And I remember on one occasion, because we had different floors of members' rooms, And even on the floor with the pro-Beijing members, uh, they opened the door and they saw all the people lying on the floor. They almost screamed. (laughs) So they were very upset with us for allowing these uh, people to come into the complex.
0: For months, the occupation dragged on. Hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong citizens visited the occupation, tens of thousands staying out overnight. Despite this, the Chinese government didn't budge. Meanwhile. Divisions within the movement started to emerge. Even though they had lots of experience bringing different people together in the lead-up to the occupation, finding a space for real discussion, it was hard to do the same thing at the occupation. In particular, the students were a new radical element that jarred with the slower process the original trio wanted.
2: Now, it was so difficult to,
0: to create dialogue the students saw themselves as the leaders.
1: And then recently, a university student was doing home a paper. He came to see me to talk about the Umbrella Movement. They said they were the only ones leading the whole thing. I said, is that right? Well, I said, it's for you to decide. Ha, you think I'm lying to you? Said, no, but they told me no such thing whole thing was led by them. I said, that's, uh, that's news
2: to me. We should have a more serious discussion with these young people early on, so that um, the, the, the occupation could be more integrated, uh, particularly concerning what kind of um, objective we wanted to attain because we are so unorganised, so disintegrated. It was so difficult to reach any consensus.
0: More galling still, when the government finally did reach out to negotiate, they chose to do so only with the students.
1: Maybe that's intentional. Maybe some people have suggested that you just talk to them, because as some people are saying, oh, they are the ones who are leading the whole movement. But I think it was wrong of the government. Uh, to uh, just meet with the students, Uh, to meet, fine. So, of course, the government should be talking to the occupiers, but not just the
0: students. They should talk to, as I said, there are four groups. They should talk to the representative of them. Perhaps the government, spotting a weakness in the divisions, decided to exacerbate them by choosing to talk only to the students. But there were practical reasons why talking only to the students was doomed to failure. How can one group
1: deliver the others? I think its whole thing is very stupid, really. So uh, so there were the talks, but then it failed. And, uh, and then no more.
0: It's uh, regrettable. The government had singled out the group least likely to compromise. Right, so it's almost like they wanted to be able to say, we've tried to negotiate, but it's failed. That's maybe that's why it ended in such a tragic way. At first, people thought, wow,
1: maybe we're so peaceful, so many of us, we can get Beijing to agree. But
0: after several weeks, they say, no, you're not going to. Come on, pack up. As the occupation dragged on, sentiment amongst Hong Kong citizens started to turn. Well, I think people are pragmatic.
1: Because you block the road and really make life quite difficult for many people, they have to spend many more hours going to work. So they got frustrated. Initially, they supported you, but after a while, when they thought that it's not going to get anywhere, they said, come on, forget it.
0: By early December,
2: 80% of people thought the protests should end. So, of course, we witnessed backlash from the communities. More and more people want the movement to end. The older groups proposed retreat. The
0: negotiations had failed so they figured it was time to reassess.
2: But the students refused to accept our suggestion. They, they said that they will stay until they get, will we get democracy. I guess they are using a waiting strategy. So it's very sad at the later stage of the movement when, when, when we witnessed this backlash and students refused to listen to us. When you're winning, you're fighting a common
0: enemy. When you start to lose, the easiest target to fight is each other. In the end, even the consensus
2: around non-violence collapsed. So some young people started to talk about Hong Kong independence. They believe that we need to change the objective of the movement, from fighting for democracy to fighting for Hong Kong independence. So we have a lot of debate, argument, infighting, within the movement. And they also, they still want to escalate their action. They want to storm the government headquarters, to cripple the government headquarters. But the trio counseled against this. We believe that it would easily invite police crackdown and you might not be able to gain sympathy from the public if the administrative arm was stopped from running. broke one window and asked people to to go into it, to occupy the government building, but in fact, not many people followed suit. The police reported that around 1,000 people were arrested. The end was near. And then, of course,
1: on the 79th day, the police came and arrested those of us, the last group. We just all sat on the, on the road, uh, the... Uh, big thoroughfare outside the government uh, complex and uh, I think we sat there for hours. We gathered in the morning at 8 or 9 a.m. And then I think they came to arrest us in the afternoon and they picked us up one by one and uh, put us in the police van and took us uh, to a police station in the New Territories. They took us back and they took some sta- uh, some, not even a statement they just took down our uh, detail personal details and then they uh they they wanted to uh us to uh, post bail so they would let us leave but the members discussed it and they refused and they said no i'm not going to uh you know give you the bail money if you want to you charge me now if you don't charge me huh, i will walk out but up to today they still haven't charged us. But as I said, I mean, I resorted to civil disobedience. and Yes, I, 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 would, I would not deny the fact that I've broken the law. So if you charge me, uh, I go to court. I would, not, I, I would plead guilty. I would not say anything. But if, if people say, why do, we, why do you do it? I say, well, I use that to challenge you because I don't agree with the way you run Hong Kong. But now they still haven't charged us with anything. They were, I think there were nine people
0: who, who have been charged so far. One of the nine people was Kinman Chen.
2: We were charged for um, taking part and organising unauthorised assembly. And they also charged us for conspiracy to cause public nuisance. This is the first charge. The second one is to incite people to cause public nuisance. Number three, even more ridiculous. Inciting other to incite other to cause public nuisance. And each charge carries seven years of imprisonment. So in total, it will be 21 years. 21
0: years in jail for organising a peaceful protest to demand something that the government had already agreed was an ultimate aim.
2: We have no fear at all to be prosecuted. When I was a college student, when I saw the pictures of those democracy fighters in Taiwan facing the martial court, they were so brave. And this has been the source of inspiration to me all my life. So I'm not afraid I'm going to face it. As a professor, as a teacher, I think this is the best way to teach my students, not just by words, but by these by our own commitment. When
0: Kinman and Emily and all the students started their protests, their hope was that they'd end up with universal suffrage in time for the 2017 elections. But just because they didn't get that does not mean it was all for nothing.
2: You have to take a very long perspective, a long-range perspective, not in the short term, not in the coming five years. We have to continue the movement so that the spirit of democracy can sustain and pass on to the next generations.
0: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and our first season. Changemakers is produced by me, written by Charles Firth, Amanda Tattersall and Amy Farrell. Our audio producer is Jules Wilkera. Our sponsoring organisations are Sydney University Policy Lab, who we could not do this without, as well as Uniting, The Sunrise Project, Australians for Marriage Equality, and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories.